This is the Overtime Podcast Network. This is the Turn on the Jets Podcast. Turn on the Jets Podcast. And now, here's your host, Joe Caparoso. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Turn on the Jets Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Caparoso, owner of TurnOnTheJets.com. Later in the show, we're going to be joined by Michael Nanya. We're going to talk through my New York Jets roster rankings. I laid them out on the website today uh, with the help of Michael, with the help of Joe Blewett, with the help of Pro Football Focus, and some of the different film reviews we've done on the website this year. Uh, we broke out and ranked every single player on the Jets roster uh, out into different tiers. Uh, so definitely give that a read on the website. It was a fun one to put together. Uh, looked at their blue chip players, their red chip players, their their Jags, their starters, their roster fillers, uh, and have a blurb and on every single player with links out to our different film reviews and some different gifts. So some good off-season content for you to check out. And Michael will join us in about 10 or 12 minutes or so uh, to give his feedback on some of the different rankings and some of his different observations on watching the team this year. Uh, Want to use this first segment of the podcast to talk about the Jets' decision to hire Adam Gase as their next head coach uh, had originally recorded a different intro to this when it appeared that it was going to be rule with Gase or Munkin as a second or third option. Uh, what appears to have went down, and I'm sure we'll hear different versions from different sides of the story, is that the Jets wanted to move ahead with Rule. Uh, they wanted to have a strong say in who he hired as his assistants. He wanted to pick his own staff. Uh, the Jets would not allow him to do that, so he decided to stay at Baylor. The Jets then pivoted and quickly hired Adam Gase. The news basically broke simultaneously that that's why it fell apart with Rule, and they were going to hire Gase. Uh, for people who follow my Twitter, follow this podcast, follow the site, uh, you'll know I'm not a big fan of Adam Gase. Uh, I've had him ranked just about at the bottom of any of the prospective head coach candidates from the second he became a candidate. So me not liking Gase as a hire is not something new, and I would give this exact same take if any team in the NFL hired him. Uh, so I'm not going to just act like I like the hire because the Jets hire him. Uh, I think the concerns with Gase are this, and we have went through this a few times. He was the Bears offensive coordinator in 2015. They had the 21st ranked offense in the NFL. Jay Cutler had seven less touchdowns than he did the year before. Uh, he goes to Miami where he's the head coach for three years. He goes 23 and 25. Now that record is somewhat inflated because he played the Jets over the course of those three years. The 5 and 11, 5 and 11, and 4 and 12 Jets. Went 5 and 1 against them beating Bryce Petty, uh, beating Ryan Fitzpatrick, beating Sam Darnold in the Spencer Long game where he snapped the ball all over the place. So that is why that record uh, is a little closer to 500. If you look at the Dolphins' DVOA rankings, they've really been playing to the standard of a three or four win team and have been getting progressively worse since they went 10 and 6 in 2016 and snuck in the playoffs before getting knocked out in the wild card round. Now, Gase is supposed to be a quarterback whisperer and an offensive mastermind. Miami had a lower DVOA on offense than the Jets in 2017 when Josh McCann was their quarterback and John Morton, who's out of the NFL, was their offensive coordinator. Uh, in 2018, they had, I think, one spot higher of a DVOA than the Jets, who were starting a rookie quarterback and Josh McCown for three games and had Jeremy Bates as their offensive coordinator, who will probably be out of the NFL next year. So the numbers don't really back it up. Miami has also finished 0-3 each of the past two years and capped this season by losing 42-17 to the Josh Allen Buffalo Bills, not to outdo the Jets' 41-10 loss to the Buffalo Bills with Matt Barkley under center. 
Gase has also repeatedly clashed with his players. He shipped away Jarvis Landry, who didn't hide his joy at him being fired. Uh, Shipped away Jay Ajayi. uh, Apparently had some issues with Frank Gore. uh, Had problems with the Dolphins' ownership when he left town. uh, As had reported issues with some of the other players as well. Um, So some problematic things on the horizon. And you have to wonder how that could potentially impact the Jets in free agency when they're chasing some of the players that they're going to want to chase with their $100 million in cap space. I think, you know, part of what's concerning about this when you step away from Gase's resume uh, is the process and the fact that the Jets thought Rule was their top choice uh, but didn't give him what he want and then pivoted to a backup choice. And, you know, let's not be revisionist history. Let's not have any revisionist history here, right? When the Jets knew they were looking for a head coach, no fan, no media member thought Adam Gase was a top-tier candidate. The Jets were the, basically, if you count Chris Richard probably going to Miami, were the seventh of the eighth team to hire their head coaching candidate. Uh, they ended up getting a lower-tier candidate. They didn't get someone with a proven resume, like Mike McCarthy, who I was not a big fan of as well either, but I would have preferred him to Gase. Uh, they didn't get an outside-the-box college hire like Cliff Kingsbury, who picked Arizona over them, or Matt Rule, who chose to stay at Baylor over going to them. Uh, they didn't get somebody with a great up-and-coming reputation in the league, like an Eric Bieniemy or a Chris Richard, who sounds like is going to Miami. Uh, they ended up getting an AFC East retreat with a career record under 500. This is very similar to the Bills hiring Rex Ryan after he flamed out the Jets, except Rex Ryan was over 500 and had four playoff wins when he left the Jets. Adam Gase has zero playoff wins in his 23 and 25. Now, I know some Jet fans had dreams of this uh, all-star coaching staff coming together where their second and third favorite head coaching candidate decide to become an offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator. Uh, but it sounds like Gase is going to bring along his buddy and his offensive coordinator from Miami, Daryl Loggins, who coached the 26th-ranked DVOA offense last year and the 28th-ranked DVOA offense the year before that for Chicago, who improved substantially when he left. This is basically a buddy-buddy hire. Uh, Vance Joseph is rumored to potentially become the defensive coordinator. Joseph is a good defensive coach. He struggled immensely as the Broncos' head coach. Kind of a similar situation to Todd Bowles. I would argue that it's a lateral move, if not a slight downgrade from a defensive mind standpoint, going from Bowles to Joseph. No word on if the Jets will keep Brant Boyer as their special teams coordinator. I would imagine that Gase, who has not been shy in playing favorites, if you follow anybody who has been close to the Dolphins, and I really encourage you to listen to Scott Mason's podcast uh, with Travis Wingfield, who is basically the Dolphins' version of Turn on the Jets and has been close in following Gase's tenure the past few years uh, for an overview of his work there. I wouldn't be surprised if the Jets went after some guys that Gase has coached before, looking for Brock Osweiler to be their backup quarterback next year and, and stuff like that. So... Um, you know, another another funny element of this is, as it's being reported out, is that part of what pushed this over the top is that Peyton Manning called Chris Johnson, and Johnson was, you know, a little starstruck and taken aback, so that really knocked it over the edge, and, you know, I'm sure Peyton Manning's going to put in good board for a coworker. He did the same thing, but for Miami, hired him, and it didn't work out, and that's the problem when you have an interim owner and a GM who's 24 and 40 running your head coach search. A lot of people... Some people, I wouldn't say a lot of people, thought I was being ridiculous when I suggested that keeping Mike McCagnin might inhibit the Jets' coaching options, and it turned out to be the case. They got a a second- or third-tier option, and you had two guys running this process who were very inexperienced with it and don't have a resume to really back up uh, the clout that they need uh, to lock down an outside-the-box or a top-tier candidate. So 
you know that that that's really it. I mean, we'll we'll take the off season and we're going to run our roster review tomorrow. It's a long off season and we'll break down Gase's tenure more in depth and. Uh, you know we'll give you every angle of it. We have 10, 15 different people who contribute to the site, and I thought Scott give a, gave a very fair overview on his podcast, and we'll do a deeper dive into Gase's offense with Joe Blewett breaking down the film and uh, with talking to other people who have followed Miami. But at the end of the day, it's an uninspiring hire, and you're counting on an interim owner, a 24-40 and 40 GM, and a 23-25 and 25 head coach to compete immediately. And I tweeted this out, and I think it, you know, maybe it took some people aback, but tell me why I'm wrong. In my mind, the mandate should be that Mike McCagnan and Adam Gase should be able to make the playoffs next year. And if they can't, both of them should be fired, and the Jets should fully clean house. Now, that might sound ridiculous. It doesn't sound ridiculous to me. Mike McCagnan's going in his fifth year as a Jets GM. How many years do you get until you need to field a playoff team? Adam Gase is going into his fourth year being an AFC East head coach. Matt Nagy made the playoffs in his first year. Uh, the, the Bears lost, but they made the playoffs. Sean McVay made the playoffs in his first year with his new team, or his first team. You know, why not? If you look at some of these young quarterbacks, Sam Donald's going to be in his second year. Patrick Mahomes, Deshaun Watson, Mitchell Trubisky, Dak Prescott, Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, all their teams made the playoffs within their first two years. Why are the Jets going to be an exception? Maybe they'll keep accepting mediocrity. Maybe people will celebrate a 7-9 and record next year like it's some kind of accomplishment. But the bar should be set at going 9-7 and or 10-6 and and making the playoffs. This is a, you know, it's not a first-time head coach, right? It's a, it's a head coach on his second job. That's why you hired him, allegedly. And that should be the mandate. And if they could hit that mandate, then you know what? The Jets proved me wrong. They proved a lot of people wrong. I'm not outside the box in disliking this hire. The only people who have publicly liked this hire are the Jets beat. because, And I don't blame them for it. A job's a job, right? You're not going to torch a guy that you're going to have to cover and try to work to get access from the next couple of years. You're going to be a little more praiseworthy of it. But generally, most people don't like this. And again, as a fan, I'm rooting to be wrong. I hope Adam Gase goes 16-0 and next year and the Jets win a Super Bowl and he gives a double middle finger to everybody on the stage who doubted it. Can I predict objectively in good conscience that's going to happen? No, probably not. I think the Jets will, you know, we'll get into it and see how the offseason pans out. I think they'll probably be a 7-9 or 8-8 eight eight team next year and there'll be some there'll be some personnel issues and some locker room issues because that's been a staple of Adam Gay's teams and we'll see where the team is at from there. Um and, that, and that's really it. I know there's some stuff also going around about Sam Darnold and Adam Gase connecting via FaceTime before. A couple of things to remember. Adam Gase and Sam Darnold have the same agent, Jimmy Sexton. So take some of that with a grain of salt. Darnold's also 21. Uh, I think he's going to be great. I don't think Adam Gase is going to ruin him. I think Gase, Darnold will continue to develop regardless of who coaches him. And that, that is the one shining positive here. But beyond that, you know, it's a tough hire. I'm not going to act like I'm overly excited about it. But look, we'll break it down all off season. Now we're going to jump into our interview with Michael Nanya to talk about the Jets roster rankings. Make sure to check out that article on turnonthejets.com. It's a long one. Read it in pieces. Read some Friday. Read some Saturday. Read some Sunday before the games. I promise you, uh, you'll enjoy that one. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. And we are now joined by this week's guest. He contributes to us at Turn on the Jets and at Gangrene Nation. Michael Nanya, who helped me with my extremely, extremely, extremely long definitive New York Jets roster rankings, offered some feedback on, I think, seven or eight different players that we cite throughout 
Uh, Michael does a really good job of grading out and tracking all the different positions on the roster, particularly the secondary and the offensive line, which is why I wanted to loop him in. Also does very good Twitter work for a young pup. So, so good on you, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on. Uh, crazy day here with the Jets coaching search. Uh, Carl, is this a big kid now uh, trying to break the Matt Rule news? So it's a crazy day, but anyway, thanks a lot for having me on and excited to get into this. Absolutely. We're, we're right in the midst of Carl Gate as uh, we're recording this, so I'm going to put some thoughts on the prospective uh, coaching options at the top of the podcast. That way, when this launches, uh, we're covered uh, whichever way this decision goes. Uh, so for the roster rankings, the way I broke this down is blue chip is basically an all-pro caliber player, someone who's a top five best in the league at their position. Red chip is in a clear above average starter uh, who you can make a reasonable argument as a top 20 player in the league at their position or has unique value because of their skill set. Starter, just a solid starting player, roughly in the top half of their league and is not necessarily easily replaceable. A jag, one of my favorite terms, just a guy, uh, very replaceable starter, rotational backup, and then roster filler. So I didn't include quarterbacks in these because they're sort of a separate beast onto themselves. Same with special teams. The only blue chip player I have in the Jest roster is Jamal Adams. And we talked about Adams in the article, particularly his strides in coverage. And Adams, for everything that people wanted him to be in year one, he really was in year two. He was one of the five best safeties in the NFL. He was second team all pro. He made the Pro Bowl. Uh, I think he's safely... Uh, could have been first-team All-Pro. He got close, and he should be in that discussion again next year. Now, Adams has always been, since he's gotten in the NFL, causing chaos around the line of scrimmage and been effective as a blitzer, but he really took some strides in coverage overall this year and was not a liability on the back end. Could you talk a little bit to how he progressed in that area? Uh, yeah, so like what I told you and uh, for the for the ranking is that I, I think last year he was, he was really close on a lot of the plays He's exposed on. Uh, I'm pretty sure he gave up five touchdowns in coverage last year, but so many of those plays he's really close on, whether he's a little bit too early or a little bit too late or maybe barely missing on making a play on the ball. But overall, his coverage numbers were not that great, not that great last year. He's exposed a lot. But like I said, it seemed like he's close a lot. But we know Adams and coming out was the same thing when the Jets drafted him. We knew that his instincts and his IQ was possibly the best aspect of his game. So from year one to year two, he's really made up that small inch that he was missing last year. So this year he was on point, just breaking on the ball, making plays constantly. So his overall numbers were really good this year. I had him for only five yards allowed per target this year, which was by far the best on the team. Uh, only 23% of his 11 out of his 48 targets this season for first down. That's 23%. That was easily the best also. And not a single touchdown allowed this year, which is great. So uh, he was close on a few, but he's never primarily responsible. So it, it was just a tremendous uh, progression for Adams and coverage this season uh, from last year. But I, I really felt like it was going to happen because, like I said, he was so close much of the time. It's not like he lacked uh, the physical the physical ability to be a, a stud in coverage or the athleticism. You could tell he could do it. He was so close, and he definitely made up that small gap from his rookie year to 2018. Yes, and, and I agree. And Adams, I think – he was the only person I had in this category. He was the only person who made the all-pro team, not counting the special teamers. And really, 
as it stands right now, in my mind, he's the best player on the Jets roster by a fairly substantial margin, I would say. I mean, we all love Darnold, obviously, but he still has a ways to go. In the next category, I only had three players, and I think it's going to surprise a lot of people, maybe initially, at who those three were in the order I had them. The player I had next was Chris Herndon, and that is based on how he produced, particularly in the back half of his rookie year. And I did this basically 75% based on what I saw this year and 25% projecting forward. And when you look at Herndon and the value of a versatile tight end who can be a primary target in the passing game and then hold his own as a blocker. It does appear the Jets have found a guy who could prospectively become a 1,000-yard receiver down the road or maybe get in that 700, 800-yard range with a high amount of consistency. Why was Herndon's year more impressive than it might look like initially on paper if you were just looking at the box scores and saw four touchdowns and 500-ish yards? Yeah, so Herndon didn't, if you look at like his week-by-week stats, he didn't really start getting involved in the passing game uh, until week six against the Colts. So if you look at his numbers from that point to the end of the season, he was a legitimate top 10 to 15 kind of receiving tight end. He was uh, fourth in touchdowns. He had four. Uh, this is These are his stats uh, since week six to the end of the season. So he's fourth in touchdowns. He had four of those. Seventh in yards with 455. 13th in catches with 34. And his yards per target was really high. He was at 9.29 yards per target average over uh, the last 10 games of the season. And only George Kittle was higher than in, in that category among the t- tight ends that had at least 40 targets over that span. So his receiving production was really efficient once he started getting involved. But the reason I'm really confident that Herndon is going to be a, a stud for this team for a long time, and obviously today the news of his arrest and that he could face the suspension came out. But aside from that, the reason I really think he could be a stud for a long time is He's great as a blocker, too, and in pass protection, he's particularly uh, particularly good. Uh, I had him for 43 pass protection snaps over the course of the year, and he only gave up three pressures. None of those were sacks, so he didn't give up a sack all year in pass protection, and in the run game, I feel like over the first half of the season, he was kind of shaky. I feel like he really struggled uh, to hold the edge sometimes in the run game, gave up a lot of stuff over the first half of the season, but he came out of the bye week, and he was much better as a run blocker over the final few games of the season, I credit him with a 15 to three ratio of assists to stuff allowed in the run game. So he was much improved as a run blocker, the area I thought he could use the most work in the first half of the season. He really progressed with that towards the end of the season. And also we're talking about the run blocking, the progression he made there, but as a, with his hands too, in the receiving game in the Miami game in week two, he had the huge drop from Darnold. So he had a, some key drops in the beginning of the season, but he quickly turned around and then he's making some ridiculous acrobatic catches uh, over his hot streak to finish the season. So he progressed really quickly uh, in season. So that definitely gave me a lot of confidence going forward uh, with his receiving, his receiving ability and his ability to contribute as a blocker. The guy I had next on the list was Robbie Anderson. And I don't think Robbie Anderson is a top 20 receiver in the NFL, but I do think he has a unique skill set that is valuable in an offense dominant, dominant league, which is the ability to get down the field and quickly score points. And I also think the guy that we saw in the last four games, three, four games last year, was the guy that we thought was coming on in 2017 and looked like an 1,000-yard receiver. And I think with Anderson... 
if you got 16 games out of Josh McCown in 2017 and you got 16 games out of Sam Darnold in 2018, he's coming off back-to-back 1,000-yard years. I think the games with Petty and McCown really hurt his overall output, and I think we're talking about him a little differently. So this is, again, this is a talent-barren roster, so Anderson being that high probably will take some people aback. And then the person I had after him was Darren Lee. And Lee's someone I've been you know, critical of at times. I think he's been okay on the whole over three years. But the reason I have him above a guy like Leonard Williams or maybe somebody else who other people think should be above him is because a, a linebacker who could play horizontally and get sideline to sideline with his athletic attributes is particularly valuable in today's NFL and trying to slow down the offenses that we're talking about when we're discussing Anderson and Herndon. So Lee is still young, played his best game of the year prior to being suspended. And again, guys like Anderson and Lee having to be ranked this high is concerning because it shows how weak the Jets' overall talent is right now. But I just, when I look at the perspective value of a inside linebacker who could move around and blitz and get sideline to sideline compared to uh, an interior defensive lineman who's going to get four sacks every year, like Leonard Williams, I gave Lee a, su- snite, a slight nod over him. Could you talk about Lee's impact in pass coverage this year and how the Jets missed him when he was out of the lineup? Yeah, Lee's coverage was definitely one of the biggest reasons that the Jets had some some moments of good, uh, a, lot, a lot of success on defense this year. He He struggled last season, and the Jets drafted Lee to be good in this area as a smallish inside linebacker. Uh, he had a great combine. He's an athletic guy, but you never thought he was really going to be great against the run. He still isn't, but you thought the coverage area was going to be where he really made his impact fell, and it wasn't happening over the first couple of years, but this year he finally broke out. Uh, he covered the flat great all year, uh, dump-off passes to running backs out of the backfield, never really went anywhere, never really got too many yards after the catch because Lee was he was breaking on passes way quicker, finishing way better, and the Jets were top 10 and fewest uh, receiving yards last running backs this year, and Lee is a huge part of that. So for the season, I had Lee for allowing only 311 yards on 51 targets, so that's 6.1 yards per target, so only slightly behind Jamal Adams for the second-best mark on the team. Uh, only one touchdown, 27% of his targets for first down, so those are both really good numbers. So he was really solid when he was in there, and he finished the season strong, too. Uh, I'm pretty sure the last six or seven games he played, he never allowed more than one receiving first down in any of those games. And when he went out over the last few weeks, uh, it wasn't too noticeable to drop off from him to Neville Hewitt because I feel like uh, Hewitt got lucky a lot. He saw some drops, some bad throws, uh, some times where he was burned and the ball didn't get thrown his way. But I really felt like you could notice the drop off from Lee to Hewitt when he went out, and a few running backs had some big receiving games uh, after Lee went out. So Hewitt gave up a touchdown to James White in this Patriots game, uh, and I believe Aaron Jones had a pretty good, uh, pretty big receiving game against uh, Hewitt in the Packers game. So I felt like the drop-off was noticeable once Lee went out. So uh, people don't like to credit Lee too much because some of the off-the-field stuff and his struggle to run defense, but I really feel like his ability and coverage was one of the strongest assets on the Jets' defense this year. So hopefully he can keep that going uh, into next season uh, coming off of the suspension because if he can, I think he will definitely have a place, if not on the Jets, somewhere in the NFL, hopefully on the Jets. But if you can cover like that at linebacker in today's NFL, it, it is a big asset. And I think it helped the Jets a lot this year when he was out there. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. 
looking into the next tier, which is basically starting caliber players, when you trickle down the list a little bit, I had Tremaine Johnson. I think he's 11th overall on that list behind guys like uh, Leonard Williams, Marcus May, uh, some of the offensive linemen like Brandon Shell and Kevin, Kelvin Beecham, a player people sleep on a lot considering it's not easy to find a low-cost, competent left tackle who plays every single week. Uh, Johnson's pretty far down the list, and I did include... I kept in mind contract value and age as I, as I included these. So Claiborne, Johnson uh, are, I believe, 10th and 11th in that grouping. I think Johnson has to be back next year because of his contract situation. Claiborne's probably a little more touch and go. Could you talk through why Johnson's PFF rankings are a little bit out of whack? We use the PFF rankings in this because it's a good tool, but again, not the Bible and sometimes can be a little off base if you don't actually watch these games and have more context behind them. So for the people who say that Tremaine Johnson was one of the best corners in the league when he was actually on the field, could you talk through why that's not necessarily accurate? Yeah, pro football focus is interesting because it's a really good place to, for the grades at least. It's a good place to go to if you don't really have a lot of perspective on a player or you just want a quick look at them to get, okay, this guy is the 15th best corner in the league or he's the 20, 20th best edge defender in the league. So it's good for that, but definitely it could skim over a lot of things that you could miss. And it, it, with Johnson, at least, and corners in general, uh, getting lucky because of bad throws and stuff, it, it should adjust for that. But with Johnson, I had him for – I do track the amount of times that a corner gets bailed out by a bad throw or a drop. Uh, so the amount of times that they should have given up a first down or a touchdown but were bailed out by a miscue by the offense. So I had Johnson for eight of those this season, which tied with Claiborne for the most on the team. And Claiborne had 22 more targets than Johnson did. And that was twice as much as anyone else on the team other than those two guys. So he was really lucky. Uh, at re- he, he got lucky at a really high rate this season. And overall, I had him for about nine yards for target allowed, which was the worst among the Jets players who played a significant amount of time in coverage. So, And he did have the four picks also, which make him look a lot better. And not to take away from those, because four picks in a season is solid. You take that from your top corner most of the time. It's hard to get four picks in a season, especially only playing 10 games like he did. But he did fumble away the one against Detroit. Two of them were against Josh Allen, and another was against Marcus Mariota. So they weren't the most impressive big plays, and he definitely uh, gave up a lot of huge bombs over the top to receivers he shouldn't have, whether it was uh, Brett Kumro or against, I forget what his first name is, but uh, against the Packers, Robert Foster against the Bills, guys who you're not paying him to get beat by. And also in the Browns game, he got toasted by Antonio Callaway and he got lucky that Tyrod Taylor way under through that one. So yeah, he definitely got lucky quite a bit this year to not be exposed even more than he already was this season. So I, it was a pretty disappointing season from Johnson. Hopefully he bounces back next year, but we talked about it a lot. He's going to be 29 years old and corners don't get better when they turn 30. The Jets should know that uh, with some of the signs they've made recently. So it'll be interesting to see if he can bounce back because they are stuck with him. So we'll have to see if he could shake this off. Yeah, the Jets have a sneaky, huge need at cornerback because Tremaine Johnson, Buster Screen, and Morris Claiborne are all 30 and all not that good, and there's not much depth behind them. And speaking of that right. depth behind them, when you when I moved into the Jag group under the starters, I had Screen in that group. I don't even think he's a guy who's going to be back next year, uh, but I did still list him out. I also had Parry Nickerson, who most or some fans assume is sort of a built-in replacement for him. I don't think Nickerson, I think Nickerson looked very overwhelmed as a rookie. That doesn't mean he won't get better in year two, but I certainly wouldn't feel confident making him a full-time starting slot corner. 
next year. Uh, another guy who I had in that category who we didn't see much from and didn't do much when he was given the opportunity was third-round pick Nathan Shepard, who I would say had a disappointing year. Those are two guys, particularly Shepard, who are older rookies, so you're banking on more of an immediate impact. What did you see from Shepard and Nickerson this season? Yeah, so for Nickerson, I felt like I agree with what you said because could he develop into a good starter or at least a solid starter? Of course he can, but I don't think he showed enough so you can bank on that. So the Jets are still probably, uh, adding to the long list of needs that they have, probably going to have to look for a solution or at least a stopgap in that slot corner spot. So I felt like there were some instances because Nickerson was transitioning from playing mostly outside in college to mostly nickel in the NFL. So it was a transition for him, but I felt like there were some times where coming out of zone, whether it was breaking to a dump off pass in the flat where you could really see his athleticism and speed. But for the most part, he did really struggle. I had him for 8.4 yards per target allowed. So only Tremaine Johnson had a higher number than that. He gave up two touchdowns in that Colts game in which he was uh, part of a busted zone coverage. So he had some problems in zone coverage and I felt like in man, he looked pretty raw. So definitely a lot of uh, progression for Nickerson to be made. Not that he can't do it. I'm interested to see if he could do it, because I do think he does have uh, some potential, but his rookie season, he's definitely uh, a liability when he is out there. So it's all progression uh, projection if you're hoping for him to be good. So the Jets probably are going to have to make a move there, uh, even though Nickerson does have some potential. And for Shepard, I feel like he was a sneaky disappointment this season because you think about uh, a player at, at his position, you're not really expecting too much because especially with the type of player he is. It's not like we expected Shepard to get 10 sacks this season. He's an interior tackle in a 3-4 defense, so primary responsibilities are mostly run defense. He's probably not going to rack up too many uh, pass rushing stats, but he only had five solo tackles this year. He had one tackle for loss, zero sacks, and only five quarterback hits. So I think we're – and he played over 300 snaps this season, so I think regardless of your role or what – uh, kind of scheme you're playing in, you got to produce more than that. So I feel like for the most part that uh, Shepard was disappointing. He didn't produce as a pass, ru- uh, as a pass rusher. And I feel like in the run game, because like we said, he's an interior tackle in a 3-4. So he's going to be doing a lot of two-gapping, trying to gas and just channel runs inside to other players to finish them. So he does have a lot of uh, responsibilities that aren't tracked by the box score. But I feel like even in that role, he kind of struggled. I uh, felt like I saw a lot of runs in his direction that were successful, and he didn't really attack double teams too well. So overall, I, and especially, and we talk about the age with uh, a lot of the Cagnan draft picks a lot. He drafts a lot of old players. Uh, since he took over, I'm pretty sure the Jets have drafted eight or nine uh, players, uh, 23 or older, which is easily, I forget the exact number, but easily the most uh, 23 and over players since the Cagnan took over. And Shepard is 25 right now. So you drafted him with the expectation he could come right in and contribute, even though he was transitioning from uh, D3 or D2, I forget which one, but even though he's transitioning from a smaller school, he's 25 years old. You expected a lot more in his first year. So I'm pretty disappointed. And as a third round pick, uh, the only day two pick that the Jets made in this draft. So definitely disappointed with uh, how his rookie season panned out. Yeah, the drafting older players nonsense just has to stop, whether it's Ardarius Stewart, Dylan Donahue, Devin Smith, Jarvis Harrison, Bryce Petty, Shepard. The list goes on. It's just ridiculous and a redundant problem that hopefully will be broken this year. Another guy I had in the – two guys I had lower than I think most fans will like to see is I had – 
Maguire in the upper tier of the Jag category. I think he is a useful complementary player in the passing game. I think he is pretty bad as a runner. He actually had the lowest yards per carry of any back with over 50 carries this year and lost two fumbles. I also had Cannon in the group below uh, Jag, which is basically roster filler in that I think Cannon is a third or fourth string running back and an okay, although prone to mistakes, special teams player. I don't think the Jets can proceed this offseason under any type of assumption that McGuire and Cannon are going to be key components of their offense. In my mind, maybe McGuire could be your number two back if you have a really strong number one back like Le'Veon Bell. But thinking McGuire can give you 150 carries every year, in my mind, is poor self-scouting. What did you see from those two guys when they were given a bigger opportunity down the stretch after Isaiah Crowell was knocked out for the year? Yeah, I feel like with McGuire, it was, he finally got that chance to kind of show if he could potentially be a, a bell cow back and number one going forward and give the Jets a cheap solution to that uh, in that position. But I feel like, like you said, in the run game, uh, amongst players who have at least as many carries as he does over the last two seasons since he entered the league, he's the lowest yards per carry in the NFL. So in the run game, definitely. And it's easy to put the blame on the offensive line because the Jets' uh, offensive line run blocking this year was absolutely terrible. It was probably the worst run blocking offensive line in the league this year. Al and Isaiah Carell both easily outproduced what McGuire did. They at least got some big plays here and there and were able to get uh, turn those negative two-yard runs into a two-yard run at least, get those extra yards, and McGuire didn't really do that. So as a runner, he, I, I don't think he has much of a future, and but can't rely on him to be a starter at the running back position. But in the receiving game, I feel like McGuire uh, did have a lot of value. Uh, I'm pretty sure he has uh, about 35% of his receptions over the past two seasons uh, since the Jets drafted him have been first downs, and that's easily the highest mark in the league among running backs who have at least as many targets as he does. So he's a league worst caliber kind of runner, but a pretty good receiver for a running back. So he definitely does have a place long-term. Like you said, as a compliment potentially to a bell, as a guy who could come in on third downs and make some receptions and maybe as a change of pace back, just come in and get him out on the edge, try to get him in space in the running game. But overall, he definitely didn't show uh, that he could be a number one running back. And for Cannon, I feel like with his speed, you, uh, you he hopefully could be a kind of like a Darren Sproles, a guy who you could just get the football and hopefully make some plays with his athleticism. But it's a hard thing to do when you don't have the football. So he had a lot of drops this year. Uh, obviously, he had the muffed punt issues in the preseason. I'm pretty sure he muffed two more in the regular season. And he dropped a few really great Darnold throws down the sideline late in the year. So it, it, you can't be a good receiving back if you don't have the football. So his hands were a huge problem throughout the entire process from preseason to all the way to the end of the regular season. So I feel like Cannon does have that upside as a receiver, but if the hands aren't going to get better and it's a hard thing to just improve your hands. So it feels like the kind of trait that you either have or you don't. So if he can improve his hands and I definitely think he has a receiving upside, but until he does, he definitely, I don't even think he's a roster caliber player because you look at his rushing efficiency. It's even worse than McGuire's obviously a much smaller sample size, but, as bad as McGuire was, Cannon's efficiency has been even worse. So, in the ground game, so I do feel like he has some intriguing receiving upside, but he got to improve those hands before it could actually be put to some use. 
All right, before we let you go, we're going to do rapid fire. I'm basically, these are going to be one word, one sentence questions. And the fact that me and you could go back and forth about these very random players on a very bad Jets team is probably a sad thing. But hey, this is, this is the business that we've chosen. So we'll go through a few of them and then we'll wrap it up. All right, so Frankie Louvu, is he a capable starter or is he someone that will never get more than three or four sacks in a season as a, a random backup player? Uh, I, I think he's a good rotational pass rusher, but not a starter. Do you think Davis Webb, would you be comfortable with Davis Webb being the Jets' backup quarterback, or do you think they should try to bring Josh McCown back for another year? I honestly would roll with McCown. I feel like he's shown that he's capable of that every other year being pretty good, so he's bad last year. I think he'll be good last year, and I think there's definitely still a lot of value having him around uh, Darnold in uniform on game days. I think there's still a lot of value to that until Darnold actually comes into his own. Should the Jets drop Steve McClendon and just start Mike Pinnell, who is a younger version of him and has been pretty productive in limited snaps? I feel like if we were discussing this one year ago, I'd probably say no, because I think he was sneaky really good in 2017. But I do think uh, we kind of saw him slow down a little bit this season. And Pinnell is actually quietly pretty good this season. So I would say, yeah, I would go younger and maybe try and save a little extra space. All right, last but not least, who is the most underrated and overrated player by the general fan base on the Jets roster currently? Mm, I think overrated? I would say Tremaine Johnson if a lot of people are still going with he's top 20, top 30, because I think he was bad this year, uh, definitely below average. So I guess I would go with him on for overrated. And underrated, I think I would go with Robbie Anderson because – and you brought it up earlier, his uh, – He'd be a 1,000-yard receiver if he had McCown last year, Darnold this year. And this was a stat that I brought up uh, before the Patriots game. Uh, he was on pace to be a 60-catch, 1,000-yard, uh, eight-touchdown guy over the past two seasons if you only include his games with McCown last year and Darnold this year and take out the games with backup quarterback. So I feel like Anderson was missed a lot by Darnold earlier in the year when he is still kind of getting that chemistry going. Uh, when Anderson was open deep and either he didn't get the ball thrown to him or Darnold missed the throw. And I feel like I still see too many people saying, oh, he fumbles too much. He had two fumbles this year, which obviously isn't. He only had one the last two years. So I feel like Anderson, because the off-field stuff, because the fumbles, which is a completely stupid reason, and because Darnold struggled early this season, and he's had a lot of games with uh, the backups both last year and this year, which his production went down. I feel like he's really underrated for those reasons. And like you said, not top 20, but I feel like that he's a legit uh, number two receiver and definitely one of the best deep threats in the league. And he doesn't get enough respect for that. All right, Michael Nanya, thank you for joining us. Everyone give him a follow on Twitter at Michael underscore N-A-N-I-A. Thanks, buddy. We'll talk to you a little later in the offseason. Thanks a ton for having me on.